Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Today, we're continuing our series, The Price of Victory, with a message entitled, Patient But Not Permissive. So turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1 to 5, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. I think we all know the difference between being patient and being permissive. Permissive parents let their children get away with everything. They may complain, they might even shout and demand, but in the end, the child soon learns that there will be no consequences that come when they ignore their parents' wishes. You know, sometimes permissive parents make the mistake of trying to reason with their children. Johnny or Susie, you need to understand that when you hit your sister, well, it makes her cry so important that you consider others' feelings as well. And of course, Johnny or Susie has no intention of changing and knows there's no reason to change. On the other hand, extremely harsh parents often fall into the category of abusers. Johnny gets out of line even for a moment. There's a whack on the back of the head or sometimes even a lot worse. And Johnny soon learns that dad or mom has a very short fuse. Rules are not explained. They're demanded. The child's spirit is either crushed or left in a seething boil. Patience is the wise choice it always has been. We learn about patience from God. We learn about it from Exodus 34, verse 6, where Moses encounters God on Mount Sinai. And that passage says, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anchor and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Well, now, you know, from that, some people have taken to assume that God's permissive. There are things that we shouldn't, shouldn't do, but God continues to love and he continues to bear with us and he continues to exercise restraint in his dealings with us. But the very next verse, verse seven, completes the sentence. It says, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Paul borrows on that same theme in Romans 2, 4, and 5. He says, Or do you presume on the richness of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. God is patient, but patience is a great deal different than saying that God's permissive. Patience means that the time is given for us to change, but that time does not go on forever. When wise parents learn from God, they treat their children's rebellion in the same fashion. Wise parents deal with rebellion out of kindness, gently leading the child to change his or her ways. But if the child refuses correction, eventually very real consequences do follow. Soon the child comes to appreciate the love of mom and dad, but also the righteousness of mom and dad. Doing good is not a suggestion, it is a command. And the child will learn that wise commands do come and they must be obeyed. And that doesn't break the child's spirit, nor does it make the child into a spoiled monster. Well, church discipline is like that. It should not be swiftly administered, nor should it be neglected. In our study of 2 Corinthians, we've come to the last chapter, that is chapter 13. And this chapter is an appropriate summary to the entire book. Paul, at least in the last several chapters, has been pleading with the rebellious minority in that church. 
They are not to assume that he's inferior to their false teachers. They, they are not to look towards worldly styles of leadership. Rather, they should learn to judge with discerning eyes. God has sent them an apostle chosen directly by Jesus to show them the true way of Christ. They should be considering what he has said and come to the right conclusion, and they should repent of their waywardness. They should come back to the truth. And with that, we read 2 Corinthians 13, 1 to 3. This is the third time I am coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. I warn those who sinned before and all the others, and I warn them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them, since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me. He is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. Now, in this study, we've already made note of Paul's two former visits to the church in Corinth. The first was when he came and evangelized the city. He formed a church. He established what it means to, to live and walk as a believer, as well as what it means to be the church of Jesus in that city. And then the second visit came about because a great many in the church were rebelling. That was the visit we previously called the painful visit. It was painful. It was exceedingly so. But the long-term consequences of that meeting led to the most joyous of results. The majority repented. It was what we often call a revival. Sins were identified and abandoned. A willingness to listen to the wooing of the Holy Spirit was evident. A joy filled the church. And a new clarity about the person of Jesus, along with what it meant to be his followers, well, it was everywhere evident. But alas, as things go, not everyone was convinced. A minority remained who would not repent. And as we've seen, a good part of the last chapters of 2 Corinthians sees Paul reasoning with them, shaming them, encouraging them, and even pointing out where their errors lay. But now, he says, I'm coming for a third visit. And then in order to emphasize the point, he quotes from Deuteronomy 19, verse 15. It says, A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. As we can clearly see, this has to do with crimes that were committed in ancient Israel. When one is to uncover the guilt or innocence of a person, Deuteronomy tells us not to jump to quick conclusions. The evidence has to be thoroughly examined and never go by the evidence of just one witness. Ask others, what have you seen? Make sure that there are at least two witnesses, but three is a great deal better. And this is what Paul is saying. The conclusion I have come to regarding the problems in the church in Corinth are not as the result of one report that someone has given me. You might remember when he deals with the factions that have developed in the church, he says, it has been reported to me by Chloe's people. And then he goes on to share what he's heard and whom he's heard it from. But Paul is not content with that. His first visit, 18 months in the city, had given him a keen insight into the nature of this church and the people who were there. And then the second visit had been for the purpose of entering the city when the problems at the church were at their absolute worst. But now he's coming the third time. And Paul means to say, when I come to bring discipline to the church, I'm not coming as one who's heard, you know, an occasional report. I'm now coming with all the facts, and I'm coming to take action. So he portrays himself as one who's going to bring discipline, but the discipline will be from the one who is both patient 
and who's gathered all the relevant facts. You know, it's a good model for church discipline today, don't you think? Wise churches are not quick to discipline, nor are they permissive, simply avoiding confrontation. They're patient, they gather the facts, and also they leave time for genuine repentance and restoration. They exude love, not rashness, nor a laissez-faire approach. See, wise churches are interested in righteousness, but they never sacrifice love for discipline. But Paul also knows that the time of patience has now come to an end. It is time to face discipline. He gives a warning now to the disobedient minority. I will come, he says, and if you're unrepentant, I will not spare you. Now, clearly, Paul must have the threat of excommunication in mind. He spoke about that back in 1 Corinthians 5, where he said, the one who refused to repent must be removed from among you. Indeed, he said this action was to take place when everyone was assembled together. It was important for the entire church to know that a a given brother was being removed. You know, indeed, Paul went so far as to say that once the sinful, unrepentant man is removed, well, then the action of excommunication was akin to handing such a one over to Satan. He was to be placed outside of the protective environment of God's people, you know, who would meet for prayer and share the ordinances and would be instructed in the scripture and be encouraged to live a life of godliness. Well, remove that protective environment and Satan has free reign to tempt, to harm, to afflict, to deceive, sometimes even to kill and to ruin a human life. Paul says that's excommunication. Now, in 1 Corinthians 5, he says this is done with the hope that the person's spirit might be saved. That is, such a harsh experience might bring a person back to their senses. Now, getting back to 2 Corinthians 13, verse 2, Paul, speaking to the rebellious minority, says, If I come and find you unrepentant, after so much grace and kindness, I will not spare you. If you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me, you're going to find that I'm not weak at all. I am powerful among you. There's a sobering thought. This month, Dr. Neufeld will continue his video series, The Missionary God, which airs weekly on Back to the Bible Canada's YouTube channel. We believe these messages are so important for believers that we want to send you the expanded message series on CD for free. We'll explore questions like, why is it that God can allow so much suffering in the world? And why has God commanded us to make disciples of all nations? There are so many challenging questions, and though they may make us feel uncomfortable at times, they require Bible-focused responses. So join us this month on air, online, via podcast, or listen on the Back to the Bible Canada mobile app. Don't forget to ask for your free CD copy of this important series by calling us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. As we read 2 Corinthians carefully, we should be able to see where all that confusion began. The false teachers and the rebellious minority had only seen one side of Paul, and that was his patient and tender side. They'd watched him closely, And during his second painful visit, when there was such emotion present, he had chosen to withdraw. And they took that as a sign of weakness, and in that, they had misunderstood him. Paul wasn't weak, but his meekness and gentleness had confused them. 
but he was acting as Christ had acted. But that did not mean that Paul was unwilling to defend the gospel or the church. His point was that Christ was speaking through him, and Christ had come in weakness, and yet he had also come in power. Again, we're reminded of Paul's words to the Romans. God is patient with the rebellious. He is patient. But it is possible for people to confuse the patience of God with permissiveness. Paul told the Romans that if we refuse to repent, we are storing up wrath against the final day. And that's, that's a frightful scene. And later on in Romans 2, Paul indicated what storing up wrath was all about. It meant, according to Romans 2 verse 8, that it means that eventually we fall under the wrath and fury of God. See, this message that God is patient, but that his patience only reaches a certain point, it's an essential teaching in Scripture. Hebrews 10, 26 to 31 teaches us that it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. For those who have sinned and found that, at least in their estimation, God's done absolutely nothing, his kindness has only continued. I mean, this is a terrible misunderstanding. God's kindness to unrepentant sinners is an example of his patience, not of his permissiveness. And since this is how God acts, it is therefore fitting for churches to exercise the same patience and the tendency towards long-suffering. Of course, churches don't exercise wrath against sinners as God does. God has not allowed us to do that. But excommunication is a reminder that God's not permissive. Now we go to 2 Corinthians 13, 3 and 4. Since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me, he is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we live with him by the power of God. Let's look at the contrast that's so self-evident in verse 4. Christ was crucified in weakness, says Paul. And of course, that part of the equation is self-evident. Christ bore up under not one, but six separate trials, all of them completely void of justice. Like a lamb being led to the slaughter, he did not open his mouth. Mocked by Herod, who wanted to see a miracle, but Christ provided none. Mocked by the religious establishment as he hung on the cross. Ha ha, they said, so you have saved others. Come now and save yourself. Come down from the cross if you're the son of God. And yet he says and does nothing. He hangs there suffering, bleeding, and dying. Crucified in weakness. And yet, says Paul, yet he lives. Three days later, he was raised from the dead. Hebrews seven sixteen says that he lives by the power of an indestructible life. Hebrews 7.25 says he always lives, but Jesus already foretold that. John 11.25, he told the grieving Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Indeed, the men that mocked him while he hung bleeding and dying on the cross, these people will one day stand before him, but this time, as he's seated on his throne, they will give an account before the king. On that day, they will realize he was never weak. And from that reality, Paul affirms something he's been trying to explain, especially in this second letter to the Corinthians. He said, we're weak in him. He has told them why he's been so unimpressive. He'd been persecuted and beaten. He had often not had enough to eat. He was unable to clothe himself well. His money was tight. He had taken the cheapest forms of transportation and often found himself shipwrecked. Weakness, <laughs> that was written all over him. But clearly they had forgotten Christ. 
He was crucified in weakness and raised in power. So it should not surprise the church in Corinth that the apostles of our Lord would act as their Lord acted. And Paul's saying, don't let my weakness fool you. When I deal with you, especially with the persistent sin that you refuse to abandon, you will see that we live by the power of God. And that's what we have all the way to verse 4. And then we come to verse 5, and we're going to find the next thought. It's a natural progression. So let's read it. 2 Corinthians 13 verse 5 says, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? unless indeed you fail to meet the test. Clearly, for those who were in danger of being excommunicated, this was absolutely essential. The time for rebellion is now past. The time for sober self-examination is before them. Do you see what's happening here? See, up till now, it would seem that the false teachers, along with the rebellious minority, had Paul on his heels. Prove that you're an apostle, they would say. It's as if they think they can call the tune, and then Paul will have to dance to it. But now the entire argument is turned on its head. It's time to stop examining Paul, and it's now time to examine themselves. So here's the question. Is Christ in you? And Paul's asking them if they're genuinely believers. And Paul even goes one step further. He invites them to consider the possibility that the self-examination might reveal that they failed the test. They've only deceived themselves. Their faith was never genuine. Now, it's important here to clarify. Paul's not saying that he knows whether or not they're going to fail or pass the test, but he holds out the very real possibility that they're going to fail. And it's already clear from reading 2 Corinthians that Paul holds this out as a very real danger. You might remember that Paul said that he was in danger from false brothers, you know, people who wanted to be seen as Christians but weren't. And today we live in a very remarkable day. You know, I very rarely hear Christian teachers warning about this possibility. You might remember that Jesus warned that on the final day, there will be those who even claim to do miracles in Jesus' name, and he will say to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. And you might also remember that it's not only the theme in the New Testament, it's also a theme in the First Testament. Lamentations 3, verse 40. Let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. Or Psalm 139, 23 to 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. That is, if there is a grievous way in me, it would prevent me from going into the way everlasting. Now, the New Testament takes that theme and it amplifies it. You know, 1 Corinthians 11, Paul admonishes those who are partaking of the Lord's table in an unworthy manner. And there he says, a man ought to examine himself. And then he adds, if we have judged ourselves rightly, we will not fall under judgment. See, there's a clear teaching in the Bible. Every person who names the name of Christ ought to have a way of examining the authenticity of their faith. To fail to do so is a monstrous oversight. But how do we do that? Well, we could go through a number of places in our Bible that gives us the kinds of tools for self-examination. For instance, Hebrews 10, 26 to 27. 
For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Of course Christians struggle with sin. Every Christian does. And some Christians do struggle with repetitive sins. They're the sins of the flesh when the flesh overcomes the will. But notice what Hebrews 10 actually says. It says, if we deliberately keep on sinning, that is, we have now come to agree with the flesh. We've stopped fighting sin. We're giving into it. We've made our choice. I'm tired of the battle with sin. I'm going to give into it. That will be my lifestyle. And if that's you, says our Bible, if that is you, the sacrifice of Jesus did not cover that. The atoning death of Jesus covers those sins which we confess, not those we cling to. John says the same thing in 1 John 3, verse 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. It's impossible to lie down in sin and accept it if we're born again. We may struggle and fall, but we're never done with the struggle until we've killed the sin. Do you remember how chapter 12 ended? Paul said he was worried and fearful, he said. There would be quarreling, jealousy, and anger, and hostility, slandering others, gossip, given to sexual immorality, and so forth. And now in chapter 13, he warns that he might have to excommunicate some who are failing to repent. Examine yourself, he says. For this we know, God is patient with us, but he is definitely not comfortable with our sin. Neither should we be. Thanks so much, John. You know, I recall a phrase, and I've seen other variations of it, but it simply says, we have met the enemy and he is us. Is it possible that within our churches, we we don't spend enough time examining ourselves and, and where our congregation stands with the Lord? We must not assume that individuals, just because, you know, they smile on Sunday and everything else, that, you know, everyone knows what it is to be in Christ. I read an article just the other day of a pastor's wife who came to terms after 12 years as a pastor's wife, coming to terms she had never been saved. Uh, Ben, this happens. And so we need to be encouraging one another to know the gospel, to understand what are the marks of genuine salvation, not as a means of condemnation, but as a means of ensuring that people understand and can articulate what Christ desires in their lives so that if any of us should find out that the marks of the redeemed life are not in us, that we can take the time to help people to find their way to Christ. Let's do that. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow for our final message of this series, The Price of Victory, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. I hope you've enjoyed today's Back to the Bible Canada message from Dr. John Newfeld. If you've been moved, I want to encourage you to check out our website, backtothebible.ca for today's message and messages from past series, just in case you're not able to listen to this fine station every day. Every program, article, blog, video is available on our website for free. A key goal for Back to the Bible Canada is to offer trustworthy Bible teaching without barrier. Special thanks to all those who make this possible. And remember, 
ask for your free copy of Dr. John Newfeld's CD series, The Missionary God Today, as our gift to you. To know more or to partner with Back to the Bible Canada, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.